Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Well, listeners, as expected, on Monday, February 12th, former President Donald Trump asked the U.S. Supreme Court to delay his criminal trial for election interference and to ultimately decide whether he is absolutely immune from criminal prosecution for actions he took while still in office. We're going to get into all that and talk about the timing of this case. Joining us to discuss the case is Erica Hashimoto, a professor at Georgetown University Law Center, where she serves as director of the Appellate Litigation Program. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So let's start at the beginning of this immunity case. What exactly is Donald Trump being charged with? Kind of what kicked this off? So he's been charged in four counts in Washington, D.C., in federal court. And two of them are counts that are currently before the United States Supreme Court. But uh, these counts are all related to his actions leading up to January 6th. And so um, he's charged with various conspiracy counts, but conspiracy to obstruct the congressional proceedings to accept the electors from the states, and then also a conspiracy to change, to try to change the outcome of the election. So uh, Donald Trump and his attorneys are claiming that he cannot be criminally prosecuted for actions that he took while in office. But his arguments were rejected by both the trial court and the D.C. Circuit. Wondering if you could tell us sort of what the judges said in those cases. Yeah, so uh, both the district court and the D.C. Circuit held that he was not entitled to absolute immunity. So Trump had claimed that he could not be prosecuted for anything he did in an official capacity when he was president. And even though he was a former president, he was entitled to absolute immunity for anything he had done in an official capacity as president. And both the district court judge and then the D.C. Circuit unanimously rejected that view and said that he could be charged in a criminal case and face prosecution, even if those acts uh, were in the bounds of his official capacity. Yeah, particularly in the D.C. Circuit, the judges there seemed really skeptical. And there was some talk about, um, you know, if these arguments were correct, then the president, a sitting president could order the execution of, you know, the person they're running against. And there would really be very little that anyone could do about it. Do you see it as kind of those those stakes? Yeah. I mean, so one of the judges asked that question at oral argument in the D.C. Circuit, and Trump's lawyer tried to get away from the question. And what he kept saying is, well, there would be responsibility because he could be impeached for that. Um, But other than impeachment, the Trump's lawyer's view seemed to be that he could not be prosecuted for that. Now, the D.C. Circuit's ruling came with an order about timing of the appeal. And, you know, timing has always been an issue in this case. You know, Trump is claiming that this is a trial, as you know, that should wait until after the November presidential election. But I'm just curious, like, was it unusual for the D.C. Circuit to kind of set an expedited timeline for this appeal? 
Yes, and I should say that they didn't set an expedited timeline for the appeal in the sense that they didn't tell Trump he had to go to, to the Supreme Court to seek cert or to ask for rehearing on banc from the D.C. Circuit within any particular time. What they said, though, was that he needed to file for a stay in the Supreme Court. Otherwise, they would return the case to the district court for the district court to go ahead and and move forward with the trial proceedings. And so they gave Trump until February 12th to file a stay in the Supreme Court. And of course, he filed that. The reason that's important is that ordinarily the D.C. Circuit in cases in where the federal government is involved, hangs on to what's called the mandate, which is what sends it back to the district court for 45 days to allow the party to ask for the full court to rehear the case. If it denies that, then the person still gets 90 days from the denial of that petition for rehearing before they have to ask the Supreme Court for certiorari. So it's, it is a very time-consuming process. And what the D.C. Circuit essentially did was to say, look, if you want to stay, if you, if you don't want the criminal case to move forward now, you need to ask the Supreme Court for that. And sort of the whole the whole timing issue all along has been that Donald Trump has been saying that he shouldn't be facing these criminal trials, if at all, but certainly not until after the election. With that expedited timeline in mind, special counsel Jack Smith actually filed his response earlier than the justices had requested. Um, and I'm just wondering... You know, if you were surprised that the Supreme Court had given uh, the special counsel such a sort of, I mean, relatively late deadline, and if that sort of says anything about how the Supreme Court is thinking about the timing of this case. I don't think it particularly says anything about how the Supreme Court is thinking about the timing. And here's why. I think the court knew and Chief Justice Roberts knew that Jack Smith was going to file that response very quickly. I mean, there was no question but that he was going to file it, certainly within a week, but well before a week if he possibly could. And so it doesn't strike me as at all surprising that he would say a week knowing that Jack Smith is going to get it in more quickly. Okay, so we may not be able to read anything from that. But, you know, this is the second time that the case has been up to the Supreme Court. You know, earlier, Jack Smith asked the justices to skip over the D.C. Circuit and just decide the issue for itself. um, And the court declined that. So, you know, thinking about timing, you know, does the court's earlier decision not to take the case then signal anything about how the justices are thinking about the merits now? I don't think so. I think the court wanted to hear what the D.C. Circuit had to say on this question. Um, And I think in terms of timing now, one issue that's kind of out there, I think, is whether the Supreme Court gives Trump time to ask for the D.C. Circuit for rehearing on banc. As I mentioned, he gets 45 days from Uh, February 6th, when the D.C. Circuit issued its opinion. And that's obviously quite a long time. And 
in my view, there is probably zero chance that, the, maybe a point zero 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 one percent chance that the D.C. Circuit takes this case rehearing on Bonk. And so that's just wasted time. The Supreme Court can treat the motion for a stay as a cert petition. And that's what Jack Smith has asked it to do, if it's inclined to hear the case at all. I think there is at least a possibility and a strong possibility that the court will go ahead and, and if it's going to take the case, treat Trump's uh, motion for a stay as a cert petition. So that's one option that the Supreme Court has. I wanted to talk to you about another. And in particular, you know, the D.C. Circuit's opinion was unanimous and it included um, both Republican and Democratic appointed judges. And I wonder if you think that makes it more likely that the Supreme Court just decides to sort of stay out of this altogether and just denies the request and let this go back to the trial court for the criminal proceeding to go ahead. It's a really interesting question. If this were not about a former president's criminal prosecution, I think the answer to that question would be absolutely, because this is an interlocutory appeal. There hasn't been a trial yet. The Supreme Court could still weigh in on the absolute immunity question, the the ultimate legal question here, if Trump were convicted at trial. And ordinarily, in a criminal case that comes up before there's been a conviction, the Supreme Court is much less likely to step in at that point, knowing that if the person is convicted, they can always step in and correct if there's been an error. Uh, So that would be my usual answer. Um, This is not a usual case, obviously. And so... I don't know what the court is going to do. I have a very strong feeling that they probably will take it, knowing that they're going to want to decide the issue eventually. And the question is how quickly they move it if they decide to take it. So some people have suggested that the fact that this case is being considered along with a separate question about whether or not the former president can be on Colorado's primary ballot, that it sort of gives the justices a chance to sort of split the difference, rule for Trump in one case and rule against him in another. Do you think that's how the justices are thinking about this case? Is that, the, is that a proper way for them to think about these issues? I would be surprised if that's how they were thinking about it. I do think, though, that even if that's not how they're consciously thinking about it, some of the arguments that Trump was making in the electors case may make it a little bit more difficult for him on the immunity question. The other case, though, that I would add in there into the mix is the Supreme Court is very shortly going to hear oral argument in Fisher, which is about whether the D.C. Circuit's interpretation of two of the counts with which uh, Trump is charged, whether their theory of the case can stand. And so the court also has that at the same time. And so kind of depending on how they're feeling about whether this case is going to end up being affected by what may happen in that case, um, 
it may not be as important to them that the trial happen as quickly. Hmm. That's interesting. Sounds like we got a lot of a lot of hodgepodge of cases to keep our eye on. But um, thank you very much for helping us sort out this one. Um, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, Lydia. Well, a lot for us to keep our eye on. And uh, just a reminder for listeners that that Fisher case that Erica mentioned is a case that the Supreme Court has coming up this term, which does not involve Donald Trump, but actually involves um, individuals who have been prosecuted for their role in the January 6th Capitol riot. And the issue there is whether or not the prosecution can charge these individuals using an Enron era statute that was meant to really stop abuses by businesses. So that, though, has ties to former President Trump because he's been charged with the same thing. So in addition to those cases, the justices will return for their February sitting on Tuesday, February 20th. They'll hear 10 cases, including Corner Post versus Board of Governors, which, Lydia, you say is a sleeper case. Why is that? Well, that's definitely what attorneys are telling me. Um, So this case challenges a six-year statute of limitations for legal challenges to federal regulations. Corner Post, which is a truck stop and a convenience store in North Dakota, um, is asking the court to decide when that six-year clock starts ticking. Is it when a regulation was finalized or is it when it actually causes an injury? Corner Post says it's the latter. Hmm, Interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about the cases that that might tie into. How is it that um, this truck stop came to be sort of the one at the center of this litigation? Well, that's the interesting part here. So this whole dispute started with a lawsuit two industry trade groups brought in 2021, challenging a 2011 rule from the Federal Reserve that set the maximum fees that banks can charge merchants for debit card transactions. So the trade groups brought Corner Post in kind of after the fact when the government pushed back and argued that their claims were barred under this six-year statute of limitations that's in the Administrative Procedure Act. And, you know, the federal government said because of that six-year statute of limitations, limitations, this case has to be dismissed. So they brought in Corner Post, which is now arguing that it can still sue because it wasn't harmed by this rule until 2018, which is when the truck stop opened. Basically, they weren't around to challenge the rule within the six-year statute of limitations. I gotcha. Bingo. Um, So what happens if the court signs with Corner Post here? Well, it could allow companies to challenge regulations that have been on the books for decades. And one attorney noted that the effects of a win for Corner Post here could be drastic if the court also overturned Chevron. Um, Just a reminder, you know, that's the legal doctrine that directs courts to defer to an agency's reasonable interpretation um, in regulatory challenges when, you know, the governing law is ambiguous. Right. And so that's the issue that's currently before the justices in Loper Bright and in Relentless. And it sure did seem from arguments like they were leaning on at least trimming Chevron. So how did those two things fit together? Well, Chevron had a sort of chilling effect on regulatory challenges because it really tipped the scales in favor of the government when, you know, companies go to court to challenge their regulations. So if Chevron goes away, you know, attorneys say that that could make companies more likely to challenge regulations. And then if Corner Post wins here, that means that companies could go back decades to challenge regulations that they don't like. I'm sort of thinking about the Mifepristone case, right, where the doctors group there challenged not just the regulations sort of easing access to the drugs, but also challenged the original approval of the drug that had happened many, many years before. Seems like that's sort of kind of lurking in the background here. Exactly. That was actually one case that uh, I had a few attorneys point to um, as an example of something that could come up in the future. 
All right, Lydia, I don't, I don't know. I feel like we touched on January 6th, immunity, electors, Chevron, abortion. I, I think we can wrap it up for today. Yeah, I think that about does it. All right. Well, uh, for all you listeners, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.